God, we pray that you would take your word and you would put it deep into our hearts. Um, We're going to be talking about measuring and standards. And God, your word is a standard. It's a a measuring tool that evaluates and weighs our thoughts and our actions and the things that we do. And so I pray today as we look at Ephesians 4 that your word would be working in our hearts, helping us to evaluate what we see there. God, use this time to glorify your son and glorify your self in us as we submit to your word, as we run to you and look for help and hope. In your name we pray, amen. We are in the midst of a, well, not in the midst, I suppose we're at the end of a two-part series. That's the beauty of two parts. There's only a beginning and an end, no middle. Uh, We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, if you want to go ahead and turn there. This small series I entitled, Living in Light of the Gospel, Pattern and Practice. And uh, last week was Pattern, where we looked at Romans 1.15. And we saw that Paul was eager to preach the gospel to believers, not just unbelievers, because the gospel has beautiful and profound truths for believers. And this week we're going to be looking at practice, which is to say putting the rubber to the road, so to speak. And I want to say two things before I jump in. The first is that uh, sometimes when I speak, um, the content is a lot. And I understand that. I got some good feedback this week uh, from somebody. I've had people describe it as drinking through a hose. That one I've heard a number of times. But um, like a waterfall, that was the the first time I'd heard that. So uh, that was was a good one. I really appreciated that. But um, I don't intend for you to write everything down. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get an idea communicated across. And so I'm just trying to come at that idea 15, 20, well, not that many different ways, but a number of different ways. And so don't feel like everything that's up there you need to write down. uh, I think just like every week, we'll have this up and available online if you want to go back to the slides. But the goal is that you are listening to what the Word says, hoping that what I'm Presuming it says is in fact true, and then weighing that. So don't expect that you'll capture everything. I don't intend for you to. And I preface this morning because if you try to capture all the content, you will be overwhelmed because the goal is not to capture all the content. It's, it's to get an idea and to get that idea from Ephesians chapter 4 and then chew on that. And if you chew on that for a day or a week or a month, um, then praise God for that. It, it would be a wonderful thing for our hearts to, uh, to be submitted to the Scripture. So again, we're not listening to... Me here, we're listening to the Word. So that's my first preface. My second preface is I want to take us back to what we saw last week. And that is that we see that God is for us. And if you try to take everything that I'm going to communicate this morning and use it as, I have to do all these things, uh, you have too soon forgotten that God is for us. You don't want to go there quite yet. And so be remembering that God is for us. We see this in that Christ died on the cross. It's this beautiful display. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And there were a couple of verses to look at this past week. And then the second is that we see that God is for us in that Jesus lived his life perfectly in honor of God's glory. And so what I mean by that is that when we say that Jesus was perfect, that involves all that he said and did and thought every choice that he made. And so if in his choices he valued God above all other treasures, we see that God is to be valued above all other treasures. And in that, 
because like Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The joy was being in God's presence, being with God, knowing God, and being in the midst of that glory. That is to say then that we too can see that God is for us in Jesus dying on the cross and in Jesus being satisfied in who God was and that satisfaction bringing him through 30 plus years worth of difficult living, different living as far as being God versus being man and then ultimately suffering and dying on a cross. And so just be remembering that this morning and remind yourself of that. We are going into the how, but we're doing that in light of the what. So the what is so important, we don't want to be going past that. I'm going to push this a little bit deeper into our hearts. This is the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is two parts. It is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And you don't have to write these down. These verses are readily available online. If you just look and Google the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you will find them there. But John Piper asserts that instead of and in the midst of that sentence, it should be by. Man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And the argument is, That just like Jesus was satisfied in who God was and that brought him through immense suffering, that we too can be satisfied in who God is and that will then bring us through temptation. Temptation, as we know, is to believe that God is not who he says he is and sin is to act in light of that. And so what I'm suggesting and putting forward is that not only can we be satisfied in God, but it's actually a good and beautiful and wonderful thing to have our desires satisfied in him. In fact, what this does is this brings him glory because we're saying you are worth more than anything else, God. I'm so satisfied in you. Maybe there are some C.S. Lewis fans out there. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, if there lurks in modern minds, in most modern minds, the notion that to desire our good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, that is to actually be satisfied in this life, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. And many of you have probably heard this next part. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so here we see again the same idea that we see in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the same idea that we see in the text of Scripture as I'll bring out. That is that we are to be satisfied in who God is and pursuing joy and satisfaction in Him. That's what Jesus talked about when he said that we could have joy in this life, that we could have an abundant life. And the foretaste that we get in this life that speaks of the greatness that we will experience in heaven, think of all the joy. I mean, when we talk about heaven, we talk about satisfaction and joy. We talk about the absence of sorrow. We can experience that in life today, Jesus promises. And today is a foretaste of what comes in the future. And so with that, let's read our text and uh, and then we'll dive in. This is Ephesians 4. I'm going to be reading verses 17 through 24. 
Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, I'm sorry, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, so let's jump in. We're going to go there for steps. And I'm a nonconformist. You got to know that. Uh, it's one of the ways I was raised. And so I'm not suggesting like this is the seven habits of highly effective people or this is the four steps to the best life. I'm not even arguing that in Ephesians there are only four steps. But as I look at the text, what I see is here are four different buckets that are helpful for me to put information in. And as I have processed this information, these are the helpful guideposts I've used just to put information together and say, okay, here's a stake in this and here's a stake in that. So I'm going to say in verse 17, we see that we're to observe ourselves. It's a very important step. In verse 22, we're going to connect the dots. We're going to isolate our faulty way of thinking. And this will become more clear as we get to that point. We're going to then remind ourselves what is true. And we're going to live by faith in light of that true. That's from verses 23 and verses 24. So let's start with the first one. In verse 17, Paul says, You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of our minds. So that's my anchor that I'm grabbing from Scripture and developing this idea from. This idea is that our emotions, our thoughts, our habits, they reveal what we worship. That is to say, the things I do are not primarily about the circumstances outside of me, but primarily about what's going on inside of me internally. We get this from various places in Scripture. Jesus says in Luke 6, For no good tree bears good fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good. And the evil person, the evil, brings forth evil. When I was a boy, I used to like to go to my grandmother and grandfather's house. And up on the wall in their living room, a big Italian family. Uh, and so up on the wall in their, uh, I'm sorry, in their kitchen, they had this knit that they put up fairly large, let's say like uh, six by seven or six by eight, somewhere around there. And it was the family tree, the Porto family tree. And it had my grandma and grandpa's name on the trunk or on the top, I can't remember. And it quoted this verse. And then on each of the branches, it had the names of the children. I thought, well, that's pretty cool when I was a kid. And then and I learned that that's really not at all what the text is talking about here. Uh, and I'm not trying to pick on them. Um, what the text is talking about is that you don't see an orange tree producing apples. You see an orange tree producing oranges. And you don't see an apple tree producing oranges. You see an apple tree producing apples. And Jesus is using a well-known tool of his to talk about at the agricultural world to communicate to these people who live in an agricultural world primarily. And he's saying, 
when you produce oranges in the things that you do, it's because you're an orange tree. Or when you produce apples in the things that you do, it's because you're an apple tree. And so it's good for us to be observing and say, oh, why am I doing that thing? It's not coming out because of what's outside of me. It's actually coming out because the roots are the roots of a certain type of tree or a certain type of heart. And the trunk is a certain type of tree or a certain type of processing. And the fruit is a certain type of tree or a certain type of communicating. And Jesus is making a point. What we do communicates a large amount about what's going on internally inside of us. James talks about the same thing. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Just take a moment and think through this idea of face masks or of social distancing. And do you know that your frustration and my frustration about the other people on the other side actually has nothing to do with the other people? My frustration has everything to do with my desires and my wants. That's what James is communicating. He says, you, do, you desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight. That is to say, the things that we want, where we put our desires and our hopes and our wants, when we don't get those, the knives come out. And we have a target that we're aiming at. And when other people get cut up by our jabs, it's not because they're the problem. It's because they have stepped in between what we want and where we are. James and Jesus are very clear. What comes out has a lot to say about what's on the inside. That's primarily the idea. And so in observing, we do something natural and normal. We ask good questions. Let me tell you, that first question has been so helpful to me. This came from one of my professors. What do I sin to get? Or what do I sin if I don't get? If you're going to write something down, if you're a writer downer, you could write that down and just think about that for a couple weeks or months. That's so helpful to process and think through. If, if I can use those as bookends and start to understand the things I do, I'll begin to grasp and understand what it is that I want and what I'm worshiping. When do I notice my emotions rise? I remember when I first became a Christian, I did a one-to-one -one discipling with my uh, soon-to-be father-in-law, or I guess I should say not yet father-in-law because marriage wasn't on the table yet. And I still have the book over in my office, uh, a little blue binder with a, it's made out of plastic, and in there, there was a, a helm of a ship. And the idea was that on the different bits of the helm were the different doctrines that you would learn that were kind of like the core doctrines. And in there was this bit about emotions. And this book was so helpful in a number of ways and so unhelpful with emotions because it taught me to deeply undervalue and in fact cover over my emotions. Well, I'm an Italian. Well, I'm 50% Italian. You should know that I'm 50% like mix. And uh, here's a good joke for you. So do you know how you, uh, you shut up an Italian? You make him sit on his hands. Okay? So we love to talk with our hands. It's actually taking a lot of uh, control. And the camera's helpful because I can't be like pacing back and forth. But but to where was I even going with that? Oh, okay. So, so our emotions, they're so important. When we get angry about something, that's revealing what we want. When we get happy about something, that's revealing what we want. And I think at least for me and maybe for other people, we're, we're, we tend to have this really uncomfortable relationship with our emotions. We, we like to say, you know, emotions, I don't want to have anything to do with you because you get me in trouble. You show me sin. And we say, okay, if I can just mute my emotions, 
that I'll therefore be controlling my sin. Well, if I think of the previous example with the oranges and the apples, all I'm doing when I'm doing that is I'm just going and I'm snipping off the little fruit that I see here and there. What's the tree going to do? I haven't fixed its root system. It's going to grow more oranges. It's going to grow more apples. And so our emotions are actually beautiful because they help us understand what's going on internally. So you can see the other two there. Um, We want to be observing ourselves. Okay, second, after we observe ourselves, we want to be connecting the dots between what we do and what we want, and then we want to be isolating what we think the main problem is, where our faulty way of thinking is. Because what Paul says in 23 and 24 is, and 22, he says, put off the old self, be renewed, and put on the new self. And I'm still suggesting there's more work before I put off the old self. Because if I just go mow my lawn during dandelion season, and I think after I've mowed, I've gotten rid of the dandelions, all I'm doing is I'm just fruit pruning. I'm just getting rid of the externals. I'm not actually dealing with what's inside of me. And so Paul is saying here, put off your old self, belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through what? What we do? No. What we want. Our desires. We want to be getting down deep and figuring out what's going on. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you can see that this and the previous step are closely associated in my mind. Again, what's inside is what comes out. Uh, Paul Tripp is a well-known author, and he has this example that's so helpful to me. He says, here's a water bottle. It's got water in it. And if I shake the water bottle, why does water come out? Well, because I shook the water bottle. No. If I take the water bottle, take the lid off, dump the water out, come back, put the lid back on and shake it, well, no lid, what's going to happen? Nothing's going to come out because there's no water inside there. So water comes out because there's water. Just a helpful way to think through why does angry emotions, or why do angry emotions, frustrations come out in the midst of a situation where I'm not getting my way? Well, it's not because the other person. It's because I want something and I'm not getting it. Or he says in Matthew 12, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. Now you can see why the gospel writers included this almost verbatim between the two of them at least. Because this issue of what's inside of us and what we want is so important. Again, it's not about what's outside of us. It's what's going on inside of our hearts. And I think that in large part, a difficulty that we have here is that uh, that we're Pharisees for the most part. Um, A number of us maybe not be may not be in that category, but a large part of us are Pharisees in that we're eager to justify ourselves in the things that we do and to have the outside look nice. Even this morning, I was, I've shared this with you before, I was uncomfortable about what to wear because there's the casual Michael who's not preaching and then there's the Michael who's preaching and I've got a spiffier belt on this morning and, and my shirt's a little nicer, but it's killing me to not be in just a t-shirt, right? But I'm a little nervous about what you think of me. I'm still a little fresh and new And so that's pharisaical to be concerned about that. Now, I could have that same desire with the proper motive. Maybe some people here don't want me preaching in a t-shirt, and that's perfectly okay. Then I'll don this for you. But I'm just trying to let you know that that's a heart worship issue that I deal with because primarily in my heart, I find that I am a Pharisee. And the American prison system is a good example here. I have a a good mentor, a, a wonderful friend of mine who was an elder at a church that I used to serve at. 
And he wrote his master's thesis in biblical counseling on how to reintegrate prisoners who have become believers while in the prison system once they have been freed. And he has done work for over 15 years in a very well-known prison in eastern Iowa uh, where all of the individuals in Iowa who commit a very specific type of crime, and adults, you know what I'm talking about, they all go through this one prison. Every last one of them, even if they're only there for holding for a short amount of time, they all go through this prison. So he's dealing with some really not nice individuals as far as what they have in their record behind them. And what he found was, as he was engaging these individuals, once they got out, they had a label on them. Felon. Thief. Whatever. Fill in the blank. And that believers were really not all that crazy about taking these individuals who had this label on them and seeing them in light of what the gospel says. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be cautious. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be wise. I'm merely trying to say that we see it in our prison system that we are really eager to judge people based upon the things that they do and not the motive that's in their heart. And so as we're thinking through this process of connecting the dots, we don't want to default to chopping off the top of the dandelions and we don't want to default to just pruning the fruit that we see because the fruit bothers us. We actually want to be relatively uncomfortably comfortable with the fruit that we see. Uncomfortable in that we don't like that it's there, but comfortable in that we acknowledge that it helps us understand what really is the problem and what we really want. Let me give you a test case so I can help you conceive of what I'm thinking about here. So let's take this individual, okay? And in, we see this individual do four different things. We see that they don't like talking with people in large groups. We see that they cry while watching movies, even kids' movies. We see that they get angry at people um, when the other people don't understand what the first person is trying to communicate, so the main subject doesn't like that other people don't understand, and that they give up on endeavors that look like they're going to fail long before they do. So they just throw in the hat. And so we say, okay, let's judge the fruit that we find. Uh, this person can't handle large groups. They just need to get over themselves. It's not a big deal. They don't need to be afraid. It's all right. They have an emotional problem. I mean, a, a grown adult crying at movies, kids' movies, like, come on. I'm, let's say this person's a man, and so we'd say, okay. I mean, I get maybe if you cried at the end of uh, Armageddon with the daddy scene or, or uh, whatever, right? But that you're crying in a kids' movie, you just need to grow up. Maybe work through your emotions a little more. Or they're getting angry. Well, this person, primarily, they just have an anger problem. So you, you just need to be peaceable. You need to relax. You need to chill out. I mean, when you feel the emotions rising, let me give you a bunch of different shears so that you can prune off all the fruit. And that's really all we do when we just try to manage our emotions instead of deal with the heart issue. So we just need to work with this person's anger problem. They're just really immature. Maybe if they're a guy, okay, maybe they're younger and they just haven't learned how to control their anger yet. Or they throw in the towel. You know, this person just needs to try harder. They just need to grow up and try harder. And for those of you who are watching on the screen, don't, don't worry, I haven't forgot about you. Uh, we'll see each other soon, but I want you to capture this stuff. That's wrong. You know why? Because all we did was we dealt with what we saw on the outside. We didn't deal with what was going on internally. It may be that those are the problems. Let's say I go across the street to Miller and Sons and I go steal something. Wrong action. Let's say I go to steal something because I can't provide enough food for my family. Right motive, wrong action. Let's say I go steal something because I feel like I don't have to pay. Wrong motive, wrong action. 
And we live in a world where people are raised in really interesting ways. I don't know about you, but I wasn't raised as a believer. And so one of the things that I struggled with as I became an adult and as I became a believer was I didn't know how to relate to people because I was raised to question everything. Like I said at the beginning, I'm a nonconformist. And people I have found outside of my nuclear family, they interpret that as me attacking them. Now, let me tell you how much trouble I have gotten into in my life because people thought that because I talked to them, because I'm Italian and I'm not always sitting on my hands, that I was angry at them. And because I tend to raise my voice, and when, uh, when I'm communicating and you don't understand me, the problem is that I'm not saying it loud enough. So I'll just say it louder and eventually you'll get it. I've gotten into a lot of problems and a lot of trouble in my life because of that. But let me tell you, for the most part, my motives were pretty pure. I wasn't trying to put people down. Now, there are plenty of times where I want to put people down or I have wanted to put people down, and that's a different motive. But as we're putting the pieces together, we just want to make sure that we're doing a good job. And as Paul's writing to these people, he's saying to them, again, it's about desires. So get down deep. Well, what if we did some research on this person? What if we got down deep? What if we talked to them? And what if we found out that they don't like talking with people in large groups because they feel inadequate? And let me tell you what, when you are a more introverted person and when you feel like you have to come up with a bunch of small talk, that's a challenge. I can relate to this person. This is a difficult thing to do. And so maybe the problem has more to do with how they view others and how others view them than, and how, instead of how God views them. And it has very little to do with large group settings. Or maybe this person cries during movies because they find this silver lining through the movies, different ones, even kids' movies, that communicate the same emotion that they are feeling. And that crying shows that. Or maybe they use anger because they're trying to protect themselves. Maybe when they're communicating and it's not being communicated clearly, it, it makes them feel like, well, I'm, I'm failing again, which you can see the second or the last one there. And so to protect this feeling that's rising up of being inadequate, they now get angry to guard over that. And if we just dealt with the anger on the outside, all we would be dealing with is the fruit. We'd just be chopping off the top of the dandelions. And the last one, maybe they give up because they're tired of failing and they look behind them and all they see is failure after failure after failure. Uh, some of you may have guessed this already. This is me. A couple years ago, we were watching a movie, uh, a kid's movie. Um, it was Peanuts. And there was a scene where Charlie Brown was trying to do the right thing. I'm going to cry right now thinking about it. He was trying to do the right thing, and he did it the wrong way because he's a knucklehead. And all of a sudden, I started crying. It totally caught me off guard. I was like, what's going on? This is Charlie Brown. I shouldn't be crying at this. Um, this is in baseball, right? Kind of like that. So uh, for those of you who know that movie, okay. So, so what I found was as I put the pieces together, I realized, okay, I really, I do have an anger problem. I'll, I'll be honest with you. But really my anger says more about how I view myself and how others view me and how I feel desperately inadequate. And the gospel has such profound hope for me because when I open up Ephesians 1, I see that I'm called. I see that I'm ordained to be a chosen son. When I open up Ephesians 2, I see that I was dead in my trespasses and sins. All those times I tried to do the right thing and I did it the wrong way, I see that God has mercy for me. 
This is the profound truth that the gospel has for us. The gospel takes us to the truth of who God is. But if we don't mine deep initially and get down deep, we will be fruit pruning. I have spent a lot of time fruit pruning. And it has been difficult to live a life fruit pruning. I was afraid for people to see that when my emotions rose within me and I got angry that I was a sinner. And it was compounded because for a while I was a pastor and I had to keep the lid on it. I didn't want people to see because I might lose my job. I might lose respect. I was profoundly concerned with what people thought about me. In the interest of being open, uh, my wife cautioned me this morning that I not share too much about myself so that you don't feel uncomfortable. So I just want you to know that, uh, that we struggle and it took me losing my job as a pastor and working a job that I thought was pretty low level to be comfortable with being inadequate and being imperfect. So I'll just give you a little bit of family history. So I'm the fourth out of five kids. And for the most of my life, I have I felt profoundly inadequate. I've used that word a couple times. That's how I have felt. My older brother is really high up in a tech company, and I don't mean like a startup out in Silicon Valley, I mean like a tech company that's been around for 40 years making computers. He is a whiz with people. Uh, it's a running joke that if you need something, all you have to do is go to him because he knows somebody who owes him something. Because he constantly finds himself in a position where other people owe him things because he just relates well and he's eager to do things and then they owe favors. And uh, he, he has worked his way up into this company because of his people skills. And in my family, there are two really firm emphases, people skills and book skills. And I don't mean emphases, that's what my parents taught. I just mean that's where we are on the spectrum. He's, he's over here, he's very intelligent, but he's way off the charts over here in people skills. And then next in line is an older sister. And she's an opera singer in Germany. <laughs> I mean, like, wow. Uh, there are some people who get full-ride scholarships. You're pretty smart. She got a, a full-ride scholarship, and then she got a Fulbright, a Fulbright scholarship to go overseas. And if you don't know what a Fulbright is, just Google it. It's for, like, the really smart plus the really talented people. And uh, she got paid to be an opera singer over in Germany. Not only that, but she's profoundly intelligent. She is fluent, and I mean fluent, in no less than six languages. Um, she's just really smart and very gifted, beautiful voice. And then next in line is another sister. She's over here uh, with intelligence. She maintained a four-point throughout high school and college, and some of you have done that. That's a great job. She didn't study. And when I say she didn't study, I mean she didn't study. I mean, she might look at her notes for five minutes before a test in an AP class, and she would still ace it. She was just profoundly intelligent, didn't study for her ACT. She got, uh, what is the ACT cap out of, 36? I think she got a 34. No studying. Here I am. I studied. I studied. I think I got like a 26 or maybe a 25, okay? So she's just really intelligent. She works for a staffing agency. She is the lead trainer for this staffing agency nationwide. And then there's my younger brother. Uh, my younger brother at 27 years old was a part-time um, owner. I'm sorry, he was a part owner of a, a small company here in Madison, and he's maintained that position now for a number of years. And he's really good with people, but he's also really smart. And so not only is he in this position because he's good with people as an owner already at 27, while I was working for him, <laughs> five years older than him, but, uh, but he's also really smart. He used to get in trouble in second grade 
and in third grade and in fourth grade because he would be correcting his teachers when they made mistakes on the chalkboard in English class and in math class. He was four years ahead in math class, which means he was on my level. And then you've got me. And somehow I managed to fall like right in the middle. (laughs) I'm not profoundly good with people and I'm not profoundly intelligent. And I'm diminutive in stature. I've always been tiny. I've joked about my chicken legs. I used to be called chicken legs when I was younger because my legs were small. And all of those things, I didn't recognize it, but they put together and they put me in a position where I just found that I was profoundly uncomfortable with who I was as a human being. And then I became a pastor and I failed at that. And so let me tell you how many times I have thrown in the towel when I've looked down the pike and I've seen failure looming in the distance because it's better to give up in my mind than it is to fail because I'm tired of being a failure. But if I don't deal with how I view myself, if we don't take Paul's words about how it's an issue of desires, all I'm going to do is I'm going to walk around looking pretty on the outside like an apple tree when on the inside there are oranges just bursting out. And I can walk around and just staple on all these apples everywhere. Look, I'm an apple tree. I've done it right. When in reality, I haven't dealt with what brings about the oranges that I don't like. And so this step, I hope I'm taking time to show you, this takes energy and effort. Don't be so afraid and ashamed of the wrong that you do that you neglect dealing with this. Yes, we sin. Yes, pastors sin. Yes, grown adults in their 50s, 60s, and 70s sin. This is life. Don't be okay with it, but don't just gloss over it. Be profoundly uncomfortable while being comfortable with your sin. Don't let it stay, but do acknowledge that it's there. Don't gloss over it. Deal with what you find inside. Okay, we'll zoom through these last two quickly. Then we want to remind ourselves what is true. Paul says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. This is why he was eager to preach the gospel to those who were in Rome. This is why the gospel needs to be preached to us as believers over and over and over. Because when we get down deep like the test case, and we look inside and we say, I'm a 37-year-old man who's afraid of failing. I must be a loser. I should have that figured out by now. Nope, the gospel comes in, saves the day. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you, Michael. While you were inadequate and incapable of controlling that by the time you got to 37 years old, there was mercy for you, Michael. This is where the gospel is so profound. It's so wonderful. It's so excellent. And when I see that in the gospel, I am glorifying God, you mean, God, I get to totally blow it and fail in not having this figured out yet, and then you offer me the gospel, and when I run to that gospel and find hope, that glorifies you? How can it be any better than that? How can it be any better than that? That's so beautiful. This is an idea that we see in the text over and over. Again, you don't have to write these down. They're readily available. If you have a, a Bible online, you click on Ephesians 4, we're at 23, I think, or 24, you You'll have a a footnote there. This will show up. Romans 12, Colossians 3, Titus 3, 2 Corinthians 4. This is the idea. We need to be renewed. I mean, when when you're uh, baking, you don't just say, okay, uh, let me stick my hand in the flour. That's about a cup. Or when you're building something, uh, doing some work at home, you don't just take a piece of wood and you say, yeah, that's about eight feet. Okay, that's looking good. Yeah, I got it. Just chop it. No, you go back to the standard. You say, measure twice cut once. 
You say, take the scoop, shake it, scrape it off the top, shake it again, scrape it off the top, because you're baking. It's got to be exact when you're baking. I've got it. So when we go and we look at our desires, then we go to the, the text and we say, okay, God, show me yourself. Show me who you are. And God says, here's the standard. Here is what I say. The beautiful truth comes pouring over us like a waterfall. We have to be going back to the gospel. Doesn't this take the drudgery out of reading the Bible? Maybe for some of us, we struggle because maybe you're like me and you want to appear like you read the Bible. So when you're in conversations because you're really bad at small talk, you can say, so how's your Bible reading going? And then you can primarily make yourself feel better because you know that you're actually doing it and others aren't because you know most people don't. And so you've not only managed to like check off all the lists like I haven't failed and uh, I'm doing the things that are right and now other people won't view me as inadequate because I've just made them feel worse than me. You see how that works? See how that's so intertwined together? This is, this is what goes on in our lives. This is what's happening there. And so then we go to the text, and the text says, no, you, you just be okay that you're not there. And you look at your fellow man or woman, and you say, you know what? I bet they're just as uncomfortable as I am. I bet they're just as not put together as I am. They might look at externally, but you know, I'll just go ahead and look at it externally a little bit as well as reflecting what's inside internally. And then you say, hey, I've got some wonderful truth for you. So Bible reading. I mean, this is so beautiful because then the Bible is like this source of joy and hope and peace and not this stamp of you have failed. It's a beautiful extension of God's mercy to us. So we go back to the test case and I'll just put that up there briefly so you can see. These are the things I've told myself. I'm inadequate. No, I'm, I'm God's workmanship. I mean, failures and all, I'm God's workmanship. The, if you want to do a beautiful thing, go look at mercy in the Bible. You know that when mercy shows up, the way that it's used, it's like a, a father talking to his son. It's like, I get it. You're small. You don't have life figured out yet. That's okay. You don't have to be perfect yet. I've done that for you. Um, the last one, I'm not defined by what God, or I'm defined by what God says is true about me, not what's running in my head. That has been so helpful for me. I still struggle to this day. This is the one I struggle with the most every day. I have issues with whether or not I'm inadequate, whether or not I'm good enough. Um, I think about my family. Those are reminders for me of the ways that I view that I have failed, or the ways that I view that I'm, I haven't measured up. But the, the hope that's in the Bible is so special and so profound. And then last, we live by faith in light of that truth. And I'm going really easy here because, again, I want all the work to be done on the, the, the figuring out what's going on underneath, and then I want the stepping forward to not be what we go to. Again, we're not just chopping off the top of the dandelions. We're not pruning our fruit trees, so to speak. We want to figure out what's wrong. We want to get at the heart level. We want to compare that with this truth of Scripture, and then we want to be living in light of that truth. And that's a long process. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, is where I'm anchoring this one. And so for this person, I'm sorry, so we're not going to do this part, but if, if you want to see this in the text, in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25, and working its way through to 21, 
what Paul does is he shows this example worked out practically. There's a put off, there's a renew concept, and there's a put on idea. And don't worry about writing this down, it's all online. The only thing that I want to point out to you, the only thing I want you to see is if you have a Bible, look at chapter 5, look at verse 4. Here you see this issue of being satisfied in who God is. He says, um, okay, I'm going to go back to verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness, those are issues of desire, must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. What an interesting suggestion that instead of sexual immorality and coveting is thankfulness. How do those two relate? Well, they don't make sense unless you deal with issues of desire. And when you deal with people who are struggling with what's talked about at the beginning of verse 3, oftentimes, and when I say often, I mean like 99% of the time, what you find is an issue of lack of thankfulness. I'm not trying to be reductionistic. I'm not trying to say it's super simple. But there's a profound level of lack of satisfaction in the first. And when you look at the gospel and you see what God has done for you, you are satisfied. And so this desire in verse 3 is an issue of satisfaction. And this thankfulness in verse 4 is an issue of satisfaction. And so you see there's replacement going on. Paul is saying, put off the old man, be renewed in your mind, what truly satisfied, try truly satisfied, and then put on, be thankful. So that's our time in Ephesians. Again, I'm trying to communicate ideas. I just want this big idea of we need to be putting the gospel on to take root. And today, what I'm working towards or what I was working towards is I wanted us to see that what we find in Ephesians 4 is that we got to be working hard to do this job of finding out what's going on inside of us. We want to be working really hard to figure that out. And let me take one more minute of your time. Thank you for your patience. When I talk about biblical counseling, this is what I'm talking about. A lot of people have this idea of what counseling is because of a medical model or because of what they've seen in movies or because of what, unfortunately, they've experienced that's been really bad implementation. And so when I offer to people, hey, if you have a problem, I'd love to chat with you about that, I don't bring condemnation. Part of the reason I shared with you about myself this morning is because I want you to know I don't have interest in knowing information about you so that I have leverage over you. I'm an open book. I'm going to give you information about me more than you'll probably give you information about you or give, you'll give me information about you. And so I would just invite you that if you have been struggling with something, whatever it is, and you want help, there is profound hope in the gospel. And there is a large amount of humility um, in the midst of my heart because I have a lot of mistakes that have been made. I know you can't say that you're humble because then you're proud. What I'm trying to tell you is that I'm not proud. I can't be because of all the mistakes I've made. I'm just, there's just so many of them. And I don't mean humble as in look at me, I'm humble. I mean look at me as in look at the mistakes that I have made. 
There's humility not because I have put it there, but because God has forced it there in my life. And so if I can offer to you somebody to talk to about this, I will jump at that opportunity. And if you're a woman, you think, well, I don't know that I want to meet with a guy. I meet with women with my wife, and we chat about these things. And what I offer to you is the same thing I have found, is this beautiful, satisfying, all nature of who God is. When the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart, I have found that God has changed my desires, and that I have been satisfied in him as a result of that. And so I just want to offer that to you. It doesn't have to be called biblical counseling. It can be called soul care. It can be called connecting. It can be called chatting together. But I would offer it to you that if there's help that I can give, or if you need help, I offer it. And in this time, there's a lot of chaos going on. Um, I don't offer condemnation. I offer the same thing I found, which is hope in the gospel. So I just want you to know that. Um, Let's pray, and then we'll do our last song. God, thank you for Ephesians. So many times I have run there, and I have found that I have hope. So many times I have failed. Uh, I've gotten down on myself because of my failures. I have gone days and weeks thinking, I I just can't believe that this is still a problem. And while you are not okay with the problem, you say, while you were still sinning, Michael, Christ died for you. You say that you foreknew me, that you foreknew us, that you knew several millennia ago, ago, or however that works in eternity, you knew when you designed this plan that your son would die for sinners, you knew that I would do the things that I do. And yet you still sent him. You didn't say, okay, game over. We got to go to something else. This is not working. It's been too much. You did that, God. You did that for me. You did that for for everybody here, you did that for the world over because you love the world so deeply and profoundly and you want us to see that we can be satisfied in you. God, I pray that you bring that alive in us. Help us to be satisfied in you. Help us to see your goodness. God, we worship you in this time. Amen.